were to ask this question, uh, what is Christianity about, about, or what does it mean to be a Christian? That's a pretty important question, right? And you think of any of your unsaved friends, or if you're here today and you're curious about Jesus and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, if your question is, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? These three verses hold all of that for you, all the answers for you. Um, and so they're pretty significant. And I was saying to Jib, we could, we could do a whole uh, series on just these three verses and just look at it like a diamond from different aspects and see what it opens up to us. Uh, this week I wrote two sermons on it, and I think I'm going to give you a third. Um, unwritten, we'll see how it goes. But it's that, it's that um, weighted, it's that kind of, uh, there's that much essence in it that kind of each word holds for us a whole gamut of truth that we can dig into. Um, some wonderful verses. But the two things I want to look at this morning is an old yoke and burden and a new yoke and burden. Normally I try to find three things. This, this morning is just going to be two because uh, there's probably too much already. But an old yoke and burden and a new yoke and burden that we see Jesus talking about. Um, apparently, we live in some of the most comfortable times in the history of our world. Uh, most privileged times. Any one of us who has a job, uh, apparently, is in the top 1% of wealth earners, uh, not only alive today, but in the history of the world. So, uh, we really do have it good, but it doesn't always feel that way, does it? I mean, I, I, who, how many times this week did you go, I feel so privileged to be in the top 1%. Uh, I feel so comfortable. I'm so privileged by how comfortable we have life this week. I think it's more likely that like us this week, there was something wrong with the water pressure. And we're like, what is wrong with this place? Why isn't the hot water coming out while three of us are trying to shower, wash the dishes and do the laundry? What is, what is happening? Um, that's probably um, our usual response, I think. Um, I don't think you turn the hot water on and go, to God be the glory, this thing works again. Um, so that's not really, really where we live. And, and our lives are so full of pleasure that we also, even though we are busy, and we are busy, everyone is busy, we also have space in our lives to fill them with pleasure. So there's clubs to join, there's gyms to join, uh, there's leisure activities that we can participate in that aren't essentials, but we have kind of the space in our life and in our culture uh, to participate in these things, and, and many of them are good things. When we think about school, uh, we th can go to private school, public school, uh, traditional school like Latin school, uh, pr uh, home school. I'm not sure if that's educated. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I looked at you laughing, and I threw in home school. Uh, home school, international school, and we're just talking about Perth at the moment. Uh, you've got a few options before you. Uh, then we think about work, and you can go get a job. Um, you can go get a degree to get a different kind of a job, or you can just start your own business and create a job. And so we have all these options before us in this life that we live, and yet the truth be told, we're not really doing that well. So let me read to you some stats, uh, give you some of the data. The German College of General Practitioners and Family Physicians reported that 10 to 20% of all consultations with a primary care physician, a GP, were fatigue-related. So up to 20% of everyone who comes in to see a medical doctor is coming in because, some th because of fatigue-related things. Not a cough, cold, flu. In 2021, American Psycho uh, Psychology, the American Psychology Association's Work and Wellbeing Survey found that 36% of workers reported cognitive weariness, <coughs> 
foggy mind. 32% reported emotional exhaustion, finding it hard to care about anything. 44% reported physical fatigue, finding it difficult to get up for anything. Another study found that up to 45% of Americans experience persistent fatigue. So you can't have a nap and get over it. Persistent fatigue. 45%, half of people. And I'm saying, I, I know we're not Americans, but I think the, the point there is here's a Western society like ours that even idolizes work even more than we do. They give it even more honor and value, and yet it, it, it's something about it is destroying them and us. It's causing great fatigue. Uh, a study from Korea reports that fatigue is one of the most prevalent symptoms in modern society. People are experiencing central fatigue. This is a, as opposed to like external fatigue that you can just move on from. Central means at the very core of who you are, uh, of how you live. Central fatigue, including memory loss, difficulty of concentration, and decline of desire, which impairs physical well-being, psychological and social aspects, and leads to social isolation. People are so fatigued, they couldn't be bothered with being with people. They just, all the energy they have is to be left alone. Isn't that interesting when you think theologically and you hear God saying it's not good for man to be alone, isn't it interesting that, that maybe a spiritual strategy is to make us so fatigued that all we have left is energy to be alone, which isn't good. In an article by the New South Wales government titled Running on Empty Towards an Unsafe Workplace, I, lo I love how <laughs> our, in our culture we just escalate everything. <laughs> we just we love drawing out the worst of it. Uh, running on empty towards an unsafe workplace. You're going to go to work tomorrow and everyone's going to die. <laughs> it claims that 70% of professionals, uh, professional workers have experienced fatigue or burnout since the pandemic. So in the last like two, three years, 70% of workers have experienced fatigue, professional workers. The problem with data is the numbers come and go past us. But what the numbers are trying to show us is what life on the ground feels like for people. And it's hard to, to get, connect the numbers to the people. But the reality is what it's saying is 70% of you sitting in the room who have jobs have experienced fatigue since the pandemic. And at the moment, we're just talking about fatigue. I'm just trying to kind of narrow down the data on one thing that we experience in our society. But there's a whole bunch of other things you may be experiencing. You may be disfranchised about something. You may be discouraged. You may be disheartened. You may have been disappointed. You may have experienced all sorts of other negative uh, experiences that you live with uh, through what you do or through friendships, relationships, through your roles in your family, through your health. There's all sorts of things you might have experienced that aren't related to fatigue, but fatigue's bad enough already. And, and this is our everyday life. None of us are going to walk out of this room today, no matter how well I preach, and face a world that's different to that. That is the society that we live in. That is our norm. Our norm is a pretty unwell place. And Jesus offers this other yoke and burden because he knows that the present yoke and burden is crushing people. This is, I, I think, remarkable. So Jesus diagnoses, so he comes in like a medical doctor and he says, 
Uh, you, are, you are laboring. The, the word they're laboring is toiling. So work is good. By, the, by God created work. Jesus doesn't come and say, you're working. He says, you're toiling. The difference between work and toil is work is something you are made to do. It's part of a healthy life. Toiling is when you are working against it and not achieving anything. It's when you work, you're kind of going backwards. In all of your efforts, you're not going anywhere. It's meaningless, worthless, huge effort and no result type of thing. What a toil. There's no reward to it. Jesus says you're laboring, you're doing this kind of thing, and you're not, your efforts aren't uh, getting you what you want, what you are, are, are needing. And you're heavy laden, you're getting crushed by this. And the sign says that Jesus is spot on. Let me show you what a yoke is, if you don't mind, Joel, throwing it up there. Um, a yoke is a, a wooden beam that gets tied to an animal. Uh, usually, it, it can be a single animal, but almost always it's two animals. Uh, two is better than one. Two is stronger than one. Uh, what one animal can pull can be more than multiplied by two if two animals are pulling just fascinating data. So it, it, here we go. Even the ancient world knew that. This is what um, a, a yoke would look like. It's the wooden beam that ties these animals together. What do you notice when you, when you look at this? Just shout out a couple of things. There's nothing I'm really looking for in particular. Sorry? Cows. Someone noticed cows. Yeah, there are cows. Sorry? Unity. There's no padding. Pa padding. Yeah, there's no padding. Not comfortable, not restrictive. I mean, it is restrictive. Sorry? Looks heavy. No elasticity. It's rigid. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, good. Let's just stop there, because that's better than uh, any point that I had thought about. Um, and it gets right back to the gospel. You can't get out of it by yourself. There's nothing the, these cows can do to, to get out of this thing. And, and the Old Testament uses a yoke for a few things. If you can just keep it up there, Joel. Uh, the Old Testament uses a yoke to, to talk about slavery, that the Israelites or the people were in slavery either to someone or something. Uh, you couldn't get out of it. You were enslaved to it. And today we can still be enslaved to things. Uh, we can, uh, we won't go there just yet. It was described as tools for work. It's, it's something that you need to get work done. So it wasn't always a bad thing. It was sometimes in these pictures a meaningful thing for a meaningful task, but it was the appropriate thing. And in, in that way, it's something of which the law is described as, that the law is something that God placed on us to help us see something. It, it wasn't like in slavery to something because, you know, you can't actually achieve the law. But it was there, the law was there to help us, to guide us, to show us in its best. And then we find out in the New Testament, Peter and others, are, uh, Peter and Paul, I uh, think of Acts 15, Peter, Paul in like Gen Gen Galatians 5 or 6, he, they, they say to the people, you know, who is putting on you this yoke again and talking about the, the law? And they're talking about slavery now and they're using the same imagery. But essentially the law at its best was this tool to help us see that we need rescuing. We need help. Um, and so Jesus is saying that, uh, the thing that you, 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 we're all tied to something. We're all defined by something. Something is burdening us. There's not a single person in this room that isn't tied to something. All of us are. And Jesus is trying to help us unearth 
uh, all these people, what is it that you're tied to? But what he, the way he says it is not putting so much attention on what it is that you're tied to. That's not that important. Uh, this is why. When you are the strong man, you don't really need to know too much about your enemy, right? If, if, you, if you are literally the, the biggest person in the room, you don't really care too much about the opposition that you come up against because the, the victory is already assured. So you don't spend too much time talking. And Jesus is very similar. He's already got the answer for all problems. So he doesn't really have to get into the problems. It's just more a sweeping. Whatever it is that you're tied to, I've got the answer for you. Wherever you come from, whoever you are, whatever it is. But it is important for each of us to know the things that we're tied to, the things that we're yoked to because it will be different. So perhaps it's a job. Perhaps you're working too hard. Then I, I think Jesus would go, you know, why? Why are you working too hard? What is it that you trust in your job to give to you that you have to work too hard for it? And if you're looking for your job to give you something, it's, it's never going to be, be able to actually do that for you. So it's going to lead to disappointment, discouragement, plus it's going to crush you and cause great fatigue. 70% of professionals are already finding out that their jobs can't um, do what they would like it to do. What about your friends? What if, what if you put so much pressure on your relationships that um, you, you aren't able to disagree with each other? Be, because you value your friends liking you so much that you can't uh, challenge one another. What ends up happening is you can never have deep and meaningful relationships. So after years and years and years, you still feel alone even though you've had friends for a decade because it's too flimsy and fragile to be able to challenge one another because you really are needing those friends to like you. If you don't get invited to something, it devastates you. Why? Because your identity is built on your relationships, on being liked by people. What about if it's marriage? These are all good things. These are all wonderful things. But you can create uh, over-reliance emotionally on each other. You can depend too much on your spouse. And we focus so much on the unity that we have in Christ that we forget that we still have an individuality and an unhealthy marriage can be one where there is too much emotional dependence on each other. What about children? What about when you live through, live through your children? We have so many children in this room. And people ask me, how big is our church? So a lady asked me yesterday, how, how large is your church or how small is it? Whatever. How big is your church? I, I don't think they understand why I laugh before I give the answer. Because I'm like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I'm like, well, I can tell you how many members we have. But there's a whole lot more non-members that are about this big <laughs> and down. <laughs> about as many of them but they have much more energy than all of the rest of us. God has blessed us with so many children, and all of us who have children, I think, most of us, most of us, not all of us, come to the, with the, to the temptation of living your life through your children, because by the time you've had children, life has disappointed you in some way, shape, or form, and you haven't been able to achieve some goal that you've had, some belief that you had about life. And the very easy thing to do is transfer that, instead of transferring that to Jesus and letting that die at the cross, we transfer that upon our children going, well, you will be able to achieve the hopes and dreams I had for my life, and I'll be able to put all my efforts into you, and then uh, I can live vicariously through your successful life. 
and we put pressure on our children, whether it's pressure through over-encouragement or pressure through overburden, it's still living through our children. And the outcome of this is either we lose our children in rebellion, they realize what we're doing, and they say, I'm not up for this, and they leave us, or they don't realize what we're doing, they put up with it, and we lose them anyway, because all they're trying to do is uh, what you want. They don't know who they are. We lose them anyway. You just can't live through your children. What about if it's health and fitness? These are good things. Jesus is going to make us all well. But the the thing about health and fitness is that's where you get your identity. Then the healthier and the fitter you are, the more vulnerable you are to any non-health or fitness. Right? So someone like myself isn't too vulnerable because I'm not too healthy or fit. So whether I get a cold tomorrow or go for a run tomorrow, it doesn't really change my life. But if health and fitness is your identity, so my identity is more around approval, if your identity is more around health and fitness, and you are very healthy and very fit, the healthier you get and the fitter you get, the closer you are to great discouragement. You twist your ankle and life is over. I'm exaggerating, but you get it. What about a home? The Australian dream. We spoke about this a bit last week. I'm not going to speak about it too much now. But if you don't own a home you kind of feel like you're falling behind at some point at some age. And then if you do own a home uh, in seasons like this, you might start actually falling behind. But also all the problems that come with owning a home, uh, kind of, is it worth it? So now I own a home, someone stole the water heater. Josh has to go, who do we call for this? You don't call anyone, it's your problem. Uh, Now I own a home, the hot water system's not working, not because someone stole it, just because... The dishwasher, who's going to fix this for us? Oh, it's me. I'm going to have to call myself. Uh, Rates and taxes come around. You don't tell the agent the rates and taxes are your rates and your taxes for the great privilege of owning land in this wonderful nation. You you see, it's like, oh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it comes with its problem. It's not perfect. It's not heaven. You're not going to be paying rates and taxes in heaven. God's not going to say, here's your eternal inheritance, and it comes with an annual bill. Here's your eternal inheritance, but when you go for a shower, if Moses and Elijah are showering, your shower's not going to work. It's a different thing. Home is going to be home, and home is still a good thing now, but it's full of brokenness, whether you have one or don't have one. So if Jesus were standing here preaching this, and he could say exactly the, the, the verse again for us, for, our, for the modern audience, I think Jesus would say this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And you go, hold on, that's exactly the same. Exactly. Because Jesus, the master of the universe, not in the He-Man series, but the true master of the universe, has these words that go over all times and all cultures because He knows the very heart of the problem of humanity. And Jesus' words transcend time and space. Jesus' words transcend cultures. Jesus' words always have life in every time and every season. You will find this, and none of us will live long enough, or in the past have lived long enough, to experience massive changes. But we will find that always there are people who need to hear the words, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden. So Jesus calls the fatigued, the disappointed, the disenfranchised, the downcast, the discouraged, the disheartened. 
he calls, he says, any one of you who've lived long enough to experience the brokenness in the world, any of you who've tried something hard enough to see that it fails, come to me. To really hear what Jesus is saying, you need to have some realization that the yoke of this world is burdensome and crushing. And it's a toil. If you haven't come to that realization, and you know, marriage is going to solve anything, kids are going to solve everything, a degree is going to solve everything, a job is going to solve everything, owning a home, a neighborhood, a friendship, something's going to make life worth it. It's going to give you an identity. If you haven't yet come to the realization that no, it won't, then Jesus' words won't yet have a sweet ring to them. Because the, the sweetness, the candy, the honey pot is something else you're still waiting out for. But when you realize, when you see that none of it is, then Jesus' words are so comforting. Then Jesus' words become like this. How did you know? Jesus, how did you know? So if you're weary here today, if life's been hard, if there's aspects of life that you can't explain the difficulty of, if you feel like someone just won't understand, if you grew up in a family that just wasn't what you imagined it to be, if you heard dad and mom uh, fighting with each other, or you have no relationship with your siblings, or you don't know the purpose of your life, in just some way you're struggling here today. You're disheartened, discouraged. It was difficult for you to even get here today. Maybe you didn't even know, why did I come today? But you found yourself here. Then hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, come to me. Weary, come. Heavy laden, come. And you say, no, I can't come my best. I haven't, if I, Jesus, if I knew you were going to invite me, I would have ironed my shirt. Jesus says, come. Come, all of you, in your not Sunday's best. I saw a friend this week. I went to go hug her. She said, no, don't hug me. I haven't brushed my teeth. Jesus says to those who didn't brush their teeth, come to me. I saw a friend Saturday, and I was all sweaty in a shirt, so I said to them, no, don't hug me. I've just come from a run. I'm full of sweat. Jesus says, come. Come to me. But Jesus, I don't know what goodness is. Jesus, I came from brokenness. Jesus, I have nothing but debt. Jesus, I've put so many other things before you. Jesus, I've pursued all these things. Jesus, I've lived a promiscuous life. Jesus says, come. Come. That's, who, that's exactly you. Come. What? Who are you speaking to? There must be someone else around you. No. I'm speaking to you. Come. Come to me. Is it okay to be a Christian? and weary, it's okay. I'll show you how in a second, but it's okay. It's not just those who haven't known Jesus. Maybe you go, well, I met Jesus years ago, but I'm still weary and heavy laden, so uh, I've really done him a disservice. I I should not come. Jesus says, it's okay. Come again. Come every day. Come five times a day. Just come to me, and when you're not with me, come back to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, it shows you're not with me. Come. 
three things, a new yoke and a burden, and three things Jesus invites us to. This is the new yoke and burden, and three things Jesus invites us to. Number one, Jesus' invitation. Jeremiah 6.16 says this, Stop at the crossroads and look around. So it's a fork in the road. God says uh, through Jeremiah, Stop at this fork in the road, look around. So being a Christian isn't like throwing your brain away. Just be aware. Look around. What goes, what's on that road? What's on this road? Stop at the crossroads. Look around. Ask for the old, godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your souls. But you reply, no, it's not the road we want. So Jesus says what he's doing is he's inserting himself into this verse. And what he's saying is the old, and, uh, the old godly p- pathway, the way to walk in, is me. I'm that way. The, Jesus has this wonderful knowledge of Scripture that often his words mean far more than, than we who haven't grown up in a Hebrew society understand. But if we go read the Old Testament, we get where Jesus is coming from. And Jesus is not just saying, come to me, all those, are, you know, he's saying, come to me because I'm the way. I, at that crossroads you stand. Your life is here. Discouraged, tired, fatigued, worn out. Here you stand at the crossroad. Choose the ways of the world or choose the old godly path, the way to righteousness. And he invites you. He invites me. Keller says this great thing. He says, what, what God, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? What God doesn't give us is a good argument. What God gives us is a good person. What does it mean to be a Christian? Come to Jesus. Not uh, hear, hear this logic and reason and then believe it. And it's not to say that in any way Christianity, I think Jib has said this really well before in a preach, it's not to say Christianity isn't logical and reasonable, it's just not the way that God gives us to enter the faith. The way that God gives us to enter the faith is through Jesus. He is the way. You come to Him and He says, I will give you rest for your souls. I am the way that gives you rest for the souls. Not I am the knowledge that gives you rest for the souls. I am the way that gives you rest for the soul. We are uh, relational beings. We come into relationship with Jesus who gives us rest for ourselves. That, That thing that we most greatly need is rest. We get it from Jesus. Do you have someone who every time you're with them, when you leave them, you feel better than when you arrived? That's like a a little bit of what Jesus is like when he gives us rest for ourselves, but in like an ultimate eternal way. When I'm with you, I feel joy come back. When I'm with you, I feel peace return. When when I'm with you, I feel like everything's going to be okay. To my great embarrassment, I almost got in a a fight when I was 16, like a fist fight. Uh, I I wasn't looking for one, but I I got myself in one. Um, And this, (laughs) this is what my great embarrassment was. My greatest relief was being in the arms of my mother. Because something about her arms around me as a 16-year-old, that's Zeke's age, even though my opponent was another 16-year-old, told me, I'm safe. The end of that wonderful story, uh, that terrible story, is that the the individual got saved a month later, uh, and we became friends. Regardless of my stupidity, this young Christian forgave me. So Jesus invites you uh, to Him. 
If you're not a Christian, then Jesus invites you to come to know Him. And you can use all your brains and all of your heart, and, and that's totally fine. But at the end of the day, you've got to make a decision about the person of Jesus and see if He is the good way. And if He is the friend that's closer than a brother. And if He is the Savior that has sacrificed for you. If He really has laid down His life so that your sins against God have already been punished and paid through His righteousness and His sacrifice on the cross. And if His death really is enough for your life. It's all about the person of Jesus. Is He who He says He is? Is He good enough? And He is more than that. Sorry, He's more than good enough. Number two, Jesus offers us a new yoke. Instead of one that's crushing, instead of one that's toiling, instead of one that's burdensome and unpadded and inflexible, um, Jesus offers us a new yoke. How, does, how do you try to define yourself? You know, as we discussed, what are, the, what are those things? Work, relationships, marriage, children, uh, pleasure, activities, weekends away, the clothes you wear. What is it that you try to find your identity in? Jesus offers you something new. And he, he offers you himself. He says, come to me. And, and commentators, I, I genuinely don't think I fully understand this, but commentators say what Jesus is saying here isn't that he puts a new burden, a new yoke on you, but that he is the yoke that's on you. And that's like hard for me to get my mind around. But when you understand what, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you understand the gospel, it begins to, to make sense. Which Jesus is saying, uh, Nas and Ella, why don't you just come here for a second? So here's a mother and a daughter. The old yoke, just come on stage, just stand next to each other. Let's say uh, Nas wants to live her life through her daughter. And this isn't true, so it's a safe example. She wants to live her life through her daughter. The yoke is of her identity is through, <laughs> through this one. Through this one's achievements, successes, decisions. And the yoke is very tight, and the yoke is very burdensome. And, and Ella, how does it feel to have to like, do everything your mom wants and um, be under the pressure of her approval? Um, yeah, yeah, how does it feel? Bad. Bad. Correct answer. But then there's this other yoke, and I, there's two ways to think of it, but either way is wonderful. Jesus says, I am the yoke, and that means that it has to be exactly what he is like. And so he comes over this relationship, and it's a Christ-centered relationship, a mother and a daughter, and suddenly there's gentleness, there's calmness, there's forgiveness, there's love, there's servanthood, there's peace. How would that feel? Good. Thank you. So many words. Thank you so much. So one's bad, one's good. Sermon over. Thank you very much. Go home. But if, if the commentators are right, and they, they, they probably are right, I just can't get my head fully around it, that Jesus becomes a yoke, then it means that our experience of relationships and marriage and work, as we, as we live with the yoke of Jesus over us and we enter those spaces, is we begin to experience His calm, His peace, His joy. It's not burdensome. But the other way to think about it uh, is that, you know, it's a double oxed yoke, and there's a danger in this, and I'll explain why, and I think this is what commentators stay away from, is that we are yoked to Jesus, that He is the, the beast of burden. 
and that we walk alongside him. And the danger, obviously, there is to think, well, what is Jesus enslaved to? What, what is Jesus? But I think that's properly answered by the gospel anyway, that says that, you know, he is our righteousness. Uh, he is the one who has accomplished uh, what humanity is called to accomplish. And so, regardless of that, as we are yoked to him, he is the one that bears the burden, and then we comfortably walk alongside him. Can you imagine uh, being yoked to a stallion? That's like, <laughs> you know, just wants to go for it. Let me just kill you. Um, or can you imagine being yoked to a rock? It's still strong, <laughs> but your life's going nowhere. But either way, we, what we do know is that Jesus says, my yoke, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so for those of you who don't know Jesus... Jesus invites you to know him, and being a, a, Christ, a Christian means laying down every effort to prove yourselves at the feet of Jesus. Whatever those other things are, you lay them down, and you say, Jesus, I want to know your wisdom. I want to know your way. I want to learn from you. I either want to have your yoke placed upon me, or I want to be yoked beside you. I want to uh, understand, because everything else in my life uh, doesn't, isn't able to satisfy and fulfill. And there's something in my heart that still longs for that, to try and understand that, and you seem to be the only one that has the answer to that. Number two, Jesus invites us, um, sorry, yeah, number three, sorry, we've done one and two, number three. Jesus invites us to discipleship. What does he say? Come and learn from me. He says, learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest. And this is important as well. When the, um, Jesus is speaking to those who would have, remember this comes out of Matthew. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience has a Hebraic mind. They've been trained in Torah and, and, culture, and Jewish culture. This is who they are. So they understand more deeply what, what Jesus is saying immediately. We have to go study it to, to find out. What they understood is that rabbis would come to um, people, so, so the schooling system was uh, you went through to a Jewish school, boys and girls, um, and then you kind of graduate, girls graduated a little bit younger, and then boys would graduate around 12, um, and only the very best of the best would have a rabbi, and you would kind of lay your case before the rabbi and hope above hopes that he would pick you. But you would really have to be the best. Like that, you've already memorized the Torah. You can explain different, like, rabbis' interpretations of the Torah. Um, in other words, none of our pastors would have uh, had a rabbi. So uh, Jesus comes, and he goes, one, number one, the surprise is Jesus makes the invitation. It's the rabbi inviting discipleship to people that, like, obviously know they failed students. So there's already this kind of, like, whoa, me? Like this privilege to walk with you? Like, yeah, come with me. I'll teach you. So if students are already failed students and the teacher's convinced he can teach them, what does that tell us about the teacher? It tells us the teacher must be pretty good at what he does. And the content must be quite different to what they think. If he thinks even children can learn it. Complex, but simple. The gospel can be understood by children but even the smartest minds can't get their heads around it. The wisdom of God is foolishness to man. 
but even children can understand. It's this like incredible uh, truth. Anyway, I'm getting lost. So the, this, rabbi, uh, this rabbi picture that Jesus is inviting them to, and he invites them to come and learn from him um, and to be his students. So basically, uh, what they understood was this integration of learning and living. So we may come to church, and so, you may, someone may ask you, oh, what did you hear at church today? And you, you talk about maybe a point that you can remember or something. They didn't understand truth like that. They understood that the knowledge had to be immediately integrated into life. And so walking with a rabbi was the practical integration of the Torah knowledge. The rabbi is going to show us how you're supposed to live according to the law that we learn in Torah. And so what the, the, the students would copy the rabbi exactly. And so you have this phrase about the dust of the master or the dust of the rabbi, this idea that the students walk in the footsteps of the rabbi. If the rabbi, they walk right behind it, they pick up the dust, they're walking so close that at the end of the day, they've, they've picked up the dust of the rabbi walking on these roads because they've literally walked his footprints and there's these fun stories of this one rabbi had a limp and all of his disciples had limps. He was the only one who actually carried an injury, but they all learned to walk like him because there is their, that he is their rabbi and they're copying him step by step. If he lay down for a nap because he's 60 years old, these 18-year-olds lay down and took a nap because that is the integration of faith and life. If he studied, they studied. If he loved, they loved. If he ate, they ate. Whatever the rabbi did, they did. Because integrating their faith meant doing exactly what the, the rabbi did. And Jesus says to them, come to me and learn how to integrate your faith, your trust in God. I'm going to show you how to live that out. Now says, that's good. Is it good? It is good. It is good when you look at Peter in Acts 15 saying, who put on them again, on you disciples of Jesus, on you followers of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, those who are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, who put on you again the yoke of the law? Galatians, when Paul goes, who has again put circumcision on you? This yoke does not belong to Christ. Your rabbi Jesus would not put that on you. Who's done that? Those of you who don't understand the circumcision picture, it was, a, it was a picture of a commitment to the law. In other words, a doing to be saved rather than the grace in, of Jesus to save us. And so Jesus again calls us to learn to walk in the grace of His salvation. Our doing doesn't come from the achieving. Jesus achieved it, and as we learn from Him, as we walk with our, our rabbi, we learn to walk in life uh, in His grace, in His peace, in His joy. You say going to work, it's quite difficult to be a Christian in a modern-day Australia workplace. It is. It is. And Jesus is going to show you how to have grace and faith and courage for that because Jesus was crucified because of His faith. You know, you say it's hard to stand up for Jesus in the workplace. It is. It was hard for Jesus to stand up for Jesus in the workplace. It got him killed. It might get you fired. But you know what? Jesus knows exactly what you're experiencing. Any fear, any desire to maybe run away, any, Jesus knows. And if you lack wisdom and you say, I'm not sure how to do this graciously and lovingly and be a good Christian in the workplace without causing conflict and drama, Jesus knows. You can turn to him and say, Jesus, help me. What does it look like? 
What does it look like to shine your light in this workplace? To love uh, and demonstrate your love. Uh, to be patient. To honor a boss that feels like a tyrant. What does it look like? Come learn from me. Jesus. Jesus, how do I be honest with my friends? Was Jesus ever honest with his friends? Peter, you'll deny me three times. Peter didn't like hearing that. No, I won't. That's a broken Jesus' heart. Peter comes and challenges something. Jesus says, get, me, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Have you had one of those friendship conflicts? A friend comes to you, challenges you. Mark, I, I really don't think that your value about so-and-so, and I don't think it's important that you need to be committed to your church. Every single weekend, Mark, I think Jesus understands. Get behind me, Satan. I love you, uh, Paul, but you're not encouraging me towards Christ right now. Sorry. Okay, no problem. Let's move on. What about our marriages? What about our children? What about our dreams of the future? What about our disappointments? What about our money? What about our homes? Are we learning from Jesus as disciples of Jesus how to integrate our faith into every single minute of our lives? There's not a minute of your life that Jesus doesn't want to take you as a disciple and teach you how to live it out in connection with your faith to Him. In a way that's not burdensome, in a way that's not um, this law pressed upon you that crushes you, but His grace, you know, it's, is it easy? It's not easy. If, you, <laughs> if it was easy, you could do it by yourself. It's not easy. You need His help. You need this. He says, I'm lowly of heart. That, that is humble. That word there literally means dependent on God. Jesus says to us, come and learn from me. I'm dependent on God. <laughs> so if he's dependent on God, what is he going to teach you? What is he going to teach me? Dependence on God. Come to me, Mark. I'm going to teach you how to depend on God. Is that going to be easy? No, because Mark likes to depend on himself. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. It's not easy. But the more we walk with Jesus, the easier it gets. The more we lay down at Jesus' feet the easier it gets. The more we watch Jesus and take our lives to Him and ask Him about the details, the easier it gets. It doesn't get harder, it gets easier. Which in that way, it's a, we're able to say, however difficult it is to walk with Jesus today, it never gets harder than this. And as we choose His will, and we choose His way, and we choose His precepts, and we, we hear His teaching, and we walk like Him in our singleness, or in our marriages, or in our parenting, or in our work ethos, or in our loving our neighbors, or whatever it is that we do in any minutes of the day, as we learn more and more from Jesus, it gets easier and easier and easier. So take any part of your life and bring it to Jesus to learn from Him. Let me ask you, and I'll land with this. How do, how do I live? How am I experiencing His gentleness? His trust in God. His peacemaking. 
His courageous honesty, His sacrificial loving service, His confidence about tomorrow, His miraculous prayers, His joy in people, His love for the unlovely, His calm, His reliance on God, His sexual righteousness, His holy ambitiousness, His wisdom with finances, His eternal perspective, His contentment, His open-handed invitation, His life in my life. These aren't standards. These are characteristics that come out as you walk with Jesus, as you spend time with Jesus, as He rubs off on you. These are characteristics that come into your life. They're not standards you have to meet. Someone wrote a very massive book that says some very wonderful, simple things. Why was Jesus crucified when Jesus was crucified? Why did he die then? Why did he die that way? I'll give you two or three reasons, but there's many more. One of the reasons Jesus died by crucifixion uh, was because it was the most shameful way that they could imagine to place on criminals, the worst of them, the, the greatest way they could shame them was through naked crucifixion. So when you experience in your life something of the shame that our society places on us as we stand for Jesus, Jesus goes, I understand. I understand shame when you stand in love for those you love. I understand. And he can come alongside you. You don't have a Savior going, aren't I good enough? You have a Savior going, I understand. After they crucified uh, people, they would bury them in unmarked graves most of the time, so they would be totally forgotten. They were supposed to be wiped out of history. This, this is the enigma of how, Jesus, how did Jesus become so famous? The only possible ways that he really did rise from the dead because the very design of crucifixion and burial is that they would be forgotten by all people. Even their own people would want to forget them because of the shame placed upon them. And yet Jesus is the highest name of all names in history. The point is when you in relationships or in difficult situations at work, you feel forgotten, you feel overlooked, you feel buried because of your faith. You know, I'm a Christian. That's made me unpopular at school. I get teased. I'm a Christian. That means I've missed out on promotion because they don't want Christians in the boardroom. I'm a Christian, so that means Jesus goes, I know what it means to be buried, to be forgotten. Trust me, you will never be forgotten. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. For eternity, you will be celebrated and known. And nothing I have for you can be taken away. You will never be forgotten. No matter how deeply you are buried uh, in unpopularity or uh, performance reviews that are harsh and unfair or, or missed opportunities or friendships where you just always get left out, Jesus goes, not with me. I went through it for you. You will never be forgotten. 
The crucifixion was the most painful way they could imagine killing someone. I, I, some people say this. I, I'm not an expert on death. Some people say that in the, history, in the history of the world, the crucifixion is still the most painful way to kill someone. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I can imagine it is quite painful. And, and this writer says that the reason that that's the way Jesus had to die was so that when we suffer, you stand up and for some reason there's some suffering. I mean, being a Christian is difficult. Jesus can't put his... I understand. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to love those who are hurting you. Remember on the cross, those who are crucifying him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And you experience something where you go, I am being unjustly persecuted. I am being harshly treated on social media for no reason of my own. I do not understand this. My neighbors are gossiping behind my back. My, whatever it may be, I'm inf- I am inflicted with incredible pain in my body. Jesus says, I know you're suffering. But with me, you will never suffer eternally. Come to me. Learn my ways. Find my peace. Let me enable you. Let me empower you. Even in your suffering, you can forgive. Even in your suffering, you can love. Even in your suffering, you can have peace. Even in your suffering, you can trust God. But you're going to have to walk with me. I'll show you how.